This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Two Severed Thumbs Up Edition. It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. On today's show, The Banshees of Inishirin is a new movie from writer-director Martin McDonough. He of three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. It stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as two friends locked in a mysterious feud. And then Disney, of all people, brings gory horror spectacle to the small screen with Werewolf by Night. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal and Laura Donnelly as monster hunters trapped on a creepy estate. And finally, we discuss an article on Forbes.com whose headline, I think, speaks for itself. Maybe Gen Z have canceled the thumbs up emoji and here's why you should worry. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the extremely brow furrowed Julia Turner, uh, emoji slinger extraordinaire. Uh, Julia, of course, is the deputy managing editor of the uh, LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey. Uh, Should we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Well, Parak and Column, if I'm pronouncing those correctly, meet every day at the local pub on their home island of Inishirin to share a pint and a laugh. But right at the outset of Martin McDonough's new film, Column tells Parak baldly, without explanation or apology of any kind, they will not be on speaking terms going forward. Column is in his 60s, a fiddler who lives alone with his beloved dog. Parak is about 20 years his junior an easygoing and unambitious man who's very much at home in this tiny world. He's brokenhearted as he would be by the mysterious loss of his one really close friend. But as he persists in pursuing his affection, Colum vows he will cut off a finger for each attempted reconciliation. What follows is a strange mix of a, you could argue, light-hearted comedy and tone occasionally, and an Old Testament allegory about the intractable darkness of the human heart. The movie stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. It's written and directed by Martin McDonough. Okay, in the clip we're about to hear, Park fatefully breaks their silence and demands an explanation. Let's listen up. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. (laughs) So, Dana, you know, this is an extraordinary two-hander, of course. Two terrific performances are at the heart of it. But I think there's some place else to set it up. It's very much a movie about a place and a time, very specific place and a time. The place is this somewhat brutal and lonely little island outpost. And the time is 1923, as civil war is raging audibly on the mainland. Maybe talk a little bit about that as it contains all of the, you know, rather remarkable things that happen in the course of its plot. Yeah, I mean, I will start out by saying that I was jumping up and down for us to do this after seeing it and writing on it last week. It's just great. I really, really encourage people to see this movie, even if you aren't already a freestanding Martin McDonough fan. There's going to be a certain built-in audience for this movie, which is people that already loved In Bruges, which is a movie from, I don't know, over a decade ago that was also written and directed by Martin McDonough with these two guys in the lead. You know, a little bit of a similar sort of Laurel and Hardy vibe between them, although they they play people whose friendship is becoming more intimate in that one instead of less intimate uh, in, in this story. Um, but Outside of, you know, folks who are going to flock there just because those three names are connected with it, I really hope people will give this movie a try because it's just not like anything else I've seen in a long time. So, yes, it is true that this movie is set in a very specific historical time and place, though it takes a little while to figure that out because Inishera in this fictional island where they're living is so remote and so... 
uh, I don't know, I don't, I'm going to say countrified that we could be in almost any century, much, much less decade. But we do start to realize ver- via various signs like horse and carriages going around on the island, uh, although presumably cars did exist in 1923, uh, or like you say, um, the sound and sometimes the sight of explosions from the other side of the island, um, from the other side of the bay, that is, the the mainland of Ireland, um, where this civil war is going on. But what I really, really appreciate about the Banshees of Inisharan is that it doesn't reduce its meaning and its purpose to, you know, being an allegory for that war or for war in general. It doesn't seem in many moments to be trying to make a bunch of points or sort of score uh, any kind of message cred with the audience. And to me, that makes it so much more profound. Samuel Beckett is someone who has been mentioned, of course, also an Irish playwright like McDonough, um, who's been mentioned in connection with the vibe of this movie, right? It's sort of existentially bleak, but also funny in the way Beckett could be very funny. And, you know, it's about big questions, really big questions, like the purpose and meaning of life and friendship. But it has this playful and sometimes cruel tone to it. It's about cruelty in some ways, but it isn't cruel toward the audience. And that, I think, sets it apart from some Martin McDonough movies. Um, You might remember him as the director of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which, while accomplished in many ways and certainly original, I think turned a lot of people off because of you know, it's, it's cruelty toward its characters and its kind of darkness about uh, about the future of humanity. This movie has kind of warm and cold currents flowing simultaneously, and I love the way it manages those tones. I also think Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson have never been better. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just jumping up and down repeatedly, so mm. I'll stop and hand it off to the two of you. But I didn't expect to love this movie as much as I did, and just hearing that little snippet from it made me want to watch it again because it has my heart. Mm. Julia, what about you? I love this movie, and I was surprised by how much I love this movie because of how much I disliked Three of Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I remember... having the exact opposite qualities of that of this movie I remember that movie feeling sort of like strident and exploitative and you know dim about American politics and class in ways that were perhaps understandable um but also just manipulative and like I really really didn't like that movie and then in Bruges I I think we might have talked about in Bruges in our like first week of existence on the show or month um, you know, and I remember it sort of as a textured caper. And I found this to be kind of profound and beautiful in the exact opposite quality of not really directing you to draw too much of a conclusion. I mean, my heart and sympathies were very much with the rejected friend and Colin Farrell, the linearity of his eyebrows. Like if you could just give an Oscar to eyebrows, <laughs> this performance like his eyebrows they're like caterpillars on speed but slow but they just are so expressive and mobile and um both performances are wonderful and the performance of carrie conlon as um porig's sister siobhan is amazing too and i just adored it steve are you team calm or team porik oh um i'm should start by saying I'm not team uh, Martin McDonough. I don't I don't like his work almost uniformly, and I thought Three Billboards was was a train wreck in the kind of mawkish race parable, class parable way by someone who didn't understand, as you say, Julia, either American race, class, culture, folkways, speech, um, none of it. And I think this is a return to form in the sense that it's a very familiar territory, his early plays, which made him a star on Broadway, were all set in very similar worlds. And I thought there was a courage to this movie that you don't, he never, I mean, he does give his younger friend a reason in this movie, in a way, which is actually one of my least favorite scenes in the whole film. He says, essentially, I'm, he, for some unexplained reason, he believes he has about 12 years to live. And he's come to this revelation in his life that he's wasting them. And he wants to compose his simple fiddle tunes, devote himself more singularly to music, and at least pay a kind of homage to those people who left something lasting and and, and meaningful of themselves behind. And he, he sees, you know, his life dwindling away in a pub with this 
Faffer, who said, like, that's an English word, probably not an Irish word, this, you know, layabout, this happy layabout. And he just needs, it's a, it's a movie about amputation in one very literal sense, the cutting off of the fingers, which is vivid and, and really horrible. And it, it, it just makes embodied in the bloodiest way what's happening between them. It's really a movie about amputating yourself from what community you have. And in that sense, Dana, it's an absolutely pitiless homage to just the intractable perversity of the heart, right? Like, like it refuses the very modern temptation to say, here's why he's doing this. It is just a singular act of perversity. But, uh, and the one thing, I mean, in addition to the performances, the one thing I have to give McDonough as a director, he seems to have come, I mean, he's made huge leaps as a film director. And the at- atmosphere of this movie is so pervasive. You are so deep inside this world. And visually, it's actually in some ways a modest film, but in other ways, it's an absolutely stunning, you know, owed to a very specific looking and feeling place. Yeah, I think I think you're right that in terms of craft, this is the best film Martin McDonough has made. I mean, it definitely is also true that he is more at home in Ireland and in the UK than in America. You know, he made another movie besides Three Billboards about the US that's kind of like a a crime caper called Seven Psychopaths that also doesn't work at all. And I think has it doesn't manage to pull off that dark tone without leaving a bad, sour taste in your mouth. This movie not only balances that tone perfectly, but we haven't really talked about this. It looks incredible. The cinematography is beautiful and very well considered, establishes that sense of place very simply, but very effectively. Um, the, the, the music by Carter Burwell is this great kind of fairy tale soundtrack that's full of these little glockenspiel tingly sounds and just just things that take you into this somewhat, you know, Celtic folklore almost kind of world. It's I don't know. I mean, I think this movie is profoundly accomplished at what it sets out to do. And it, that may not be up your alley because it is not quite psychologically realist. <laughs> you know, you have to accept as not quite an allegory, but something as of, of a fairy tale what's happening in this community and between these two men. But I feel like once you do accept this movie at its own terms, which it lays out pretty well, it it accomplishes all of that kind of perfectly. I also wanted to to shout out some of the smaller performances because Martin McDonough as a former playwright has an almost a kind of a company that he works with. He really likes to work with the same actors as you know the two leads here um, over and over and Carrie Condon who plays the sister, the bookish sister of the Colin Farrell character who is miserable on the island because everyone on the island is boring as she points out at one point when you know her brother's friend complains, "Well, he's feckin' boring." She says, "You know, you're all feckin' boring and uh, the island is just too small." to contain her. She's a great character, wonderfully played by Carrie Condon. Also, Barry Keown, I don't know if you guys agreed, but he's there's something really, just talk about Shakespearean. He's, he's almost like a, a puck or some kind of holy fool figure. Um, Barry Keown, who unfortunately people may know more from, you know, the fact that he's now in Marvel movies, but he's just this fantastic Irish actor who's just beautiful in a small role as the kind of village idiot of the, of the small island. Um, all I do when you keep bouncing back to me, Steve, is just raving more about this movie. Um, no, and maybe it's... that's just because I enjoy being surprised. I like going into a movie thinking, eh, Martin McDonough, he's done some good du- stuff, done some bad stuff, wonder how this will be, and then just feeling transported and entranced for two hours. It's a rare thing. I mean, I hear what both of you are saying. I guess I feel like I want to get to the meat of this, which is I was serious. Are you team? <laughs> are, do you find yourself siding with one of the fellas? Or do you find yourself sympathetic to both of them? And why is this particular question of whether it's acceptable to end a friendship in a cloistered world where you don't have very many options for friends? Why does that seem so cruel? Is it cruel? Is it acceptable? Like, I think there's just like moral questions at the heart of the movie that I'm curious to hear you guys, your responses to, because they very much colored. I, I found the moral conundrum I mean, yes, there's beauty, there's craft, there's the score, there's the scenery, et cetera, there's the performances. But like, I think part of why I responded to this differently than I have Martin McDonough's work in the past is I think the actual question is interesting and interesting at this kind of moment post-pandemic of a lot of re-examination of relationships and what works and what doesn't. And a lot of people being stuck in their own islands with whoever else happens to live on the island and having to scare them by island, I mean, isolated house. 
having to stare people in the face and figure out whether you still want to talk to them every day um, and actually like them. And I, I just, I'm, I'm curious to hear what moral chords the film struck for you with the, with its avenues of inquiry. I wouldn't say that I side with either one because I think that would rob the movie of its primal force somehow. What I would say is that, you know, Colm gives him a reason and, you know, he gives him the reason of, I, I want to give some gift to posterity and that's my music. And I'm, I can't, there's, there's just something eating at him about the time now considered wasted, you know, and not only does he give the reason, the movie then shows you that Colm as a fiddler and a teacher of music is flourishing. It's in these little asides, but it's very definite. In fact, at one moment, Park Dana comes in and interrupts him as he's giving this sort of beautiful, you know, Celtic music t- tutorial to young musicians who are playing along with him. So he's actually making good. He's not just picking up with someone else and having a pint or frittering away his time in some other way. And I, it certainly ups the stakes of Pork's inability to see that for what it is, cruel though it may be, and as a friend, respect that choice. Right, and that choice also, Colm's choice, I mean, to to cut off his fingers, the fingers of his left hand, the one that's doing the violin picking, you know, it, each time that, that his ex-friend talks to him, you know, this kind of threat that he issues at the beginning of the movie has this kind of O. Henry story quality, right? Where the mm. very thing he claims to want to do with the last 12 years of his life, which is play and teach violin, fiddle to his to his friends in the pub, can't be done if he follows through with the promise. And that's the place I think that the movie exits uh, identifiable psychology, where you could ask things like, whose side are you on? And goes into this place, you know, this realm of kind of metaphor or fairy tale where, you know, primal resentments are being acted out that don't really have anything to do with each character's best interest, right? I mean, there's a self-destructive negativity in the Brendan Gleeson character that is his kind of tragic weakness. And then there's this, I don't know what you would call the sad, sweet, adorable Colin Farrell character's tragic flaw, but essentially he can't leave well enough alone, right? He can't stop pestering his friend and asking why and trying to fix it somehow. And so to me, and I say this in my review, my my identification kept shifting between the two. But I think that that, again, was all just being skillfully managed by the screenplay and the actors. I don't think it was the case that the movie was wishy-washily not able to decide kind of who was right. And especially if you think about where the movie ends, which we won't spoil. But, you know, there's there's almost a sense that it's like some Miltonic, you know, battle between mm-hmm. the two that that can't ever be one on earth, you know. And in that sense, too, it does become, it's not a heavy-handed allegory for the civil war that's going on at the same time, but in a way it is about human conflict and the way that, you know, ridiculous means or purposes can turn into tragic outcomes. And I, I think the movie is so profound about not answering that question exactly. Yeah, I, I sympathize with that. And then I also feel... The movie does. I think I'm more team Porik. I think I'm team kindness. <laughs> I'm not team art. <laughs> it's it's. I'm laughing because it would be silly to reduce this movie so um, so fruitlessly. And I think actually, in in the path of the character of the sister Siobhan, you see a way to balance ambition and kindness that is does not involve bodily harm. <laughs> but the fact that. Um, the sense that Colin's despair leads him to make this perverse threat, which, you know, if the problem is that his friend can't take his art seriously enough, the notion of levying a threat, which is you will rob me of my ability to do my art, which already it's established that the friend doesn't sufficiently respect, like it's a, it's, it's the wrong threat. And it feels like the threat, the kind of mutilatedness of the threat, even before the mutilation, to me suggests like a kind of damage in the rigidity of Calm's, the rigidity of his desire to pursue his art and the kind of cruelty with which he, um, an absolutism with which he decides to pursue that. But I'm still puzzling it over and I totally agree, Dana. Everyone should go see it. Agree. Okay. It's uh, The Banshees of Inishirin, the new movie from Martin McDonough. It's in the theaters now. Uh, one day, of course, it'll be streaming, but maybe check it out sooner rather than later. It's a beautiful-looking movie in addition to everything else. All right, let's uh, let's move on.
All right. Now is typically in the course of the podcast, we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? Stephen, the business this week is just to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about a new quarter being issued. I believe it actually comes out this week that has an unusual face for U.S. currency on it. It's the face of a cultural figure, which in itself is unusual on U.S. currency. It's the face of a woman, which is also unusual. And it's the face of a Chinese American for the first time that an Asian American has appeared on American money. It's Anna Mae Wong, the silent and sound movie actress who was a big name in her day. We'll talk about that. But she's not somebody at the forefront of the cultural imagination right now. She's an interesting choice for the new series of women quarters that the U.S. Mint is coming out with. So we will talk about Anna Mae Wong, her legacy, and what it means that she's showing up on our money. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing that segment at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show. All right. Well, Disney, it's not exactly a name you associate with the horror genre. But then again, if it's in the MCU, it'll be exploited. And lo and behold, there was an MC, a Marvel character from the comic book days, uh, Jack Russell, a.k.a. Werewolf by Night. I think the first one was 1972, maybe. And so he arrives now inevitably on the screen, haha, <laughs> small screen. Werewolf by Night is on the Streaming Plus platform. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal, summoned to an ancient estate whose patriarch has recently died. He arrives to find four other monster hunters with him. They must fight to the death to see who gains possession of the Bloodstone, a magic gem conferring superpowers and longevity. It also stars Laura Donnelly as the patriarch's estranged and very formidable daughter, uh, in the clip you're about to hear, the title character, the werewolf, is trying to assure his new ally, played by Donnelly, that she shouldn't be too worked up about his condition. You see, I've got systems to manage the herd they could cause. I don't care about your systems. Just stay away from me until you can't. But they, they work. You'd be surprised. They, they actually work. Because I'm not like that. I'm like this. You know, I'm... I would never hurt you or hurt anyone. I'm, I'm, any hunting that I do is done by a part of me that is not me. And that's not the part you're with right now. All right, Julia, let me start with you. There's a great semi-maybe hidden fact about this movie. It's directed by an A-list movie composer, Michael Giacchino. How do you think he did? I love this weird little object. And I did, I, I hadn't thought of Mike, Michael Giacchino as a director. Um, and I do think there is some just kind of attention to the sensation and mood of the moment that feels in keeping with, you know, what, what composers are doing primarily. Um, but I enjoyed it. And I think the two central performances of uh, Gael Garcia Bernal as Jack Russell and, um, and Laura Donnelly as Elsa are really compelling. And I also enjoyed seeing Fraser's agent BB as this like uh, evil convener. And yes, Harriet well Sansom Harris, she's kills in that villain role. She's so funny. She's so fabulous. There is only one bloodstone, and it can have only one keeper. So, I don't know, you just say, oh, you're tuning in for the latest Marvel entertainment, and I did not expect, like, an art house jewel box homage to, like, B-movies of yesteryear, but that's what I got. (laughs) Dana, what did you make of this? I mean, that is exactly why I've been wanting to do this ever since it premiered on Disney, I don't know, probably a month ago. We finally waited until the week of Halloween, the last possible week of the month of scariness to talk about this monster movie. But from the minute I saw, I was sort of like, you had me at Michael Cicchino directing and an homage to Universal, Hammer, you know, old school kind of black and white monster movies. Um, I don't think this completely pulls off the strange thing that it's trying to do. But I will say this, I was trying to figure out the format because the weirdest thing about it probably is the length, right? Werewolf by Night is 52 minutes long. So it doesn't feel like a TV pilot. It doesn't feel like a movie. It's in this universe, right? The the MCU that seems to be begging for teasers and spoilers and Easter eggs and hints about sequels, but it doesn't have any of that stuff. It really is a self-contained hour that I suppose could be spun off, but it completes its own story. And 
while I was watching it, I was thinking the closest thing I can think of to what this feels like is a Twilight Zone. And then mm. I and then mm. we read an interview with Chiquino, you know, researching for the show. And what did he say? Oh, I was inspired by the Twilight Zone. He was actually thinking of that kind of, you know, um, sort of golden age TV when he was making it. So that in itself, just the the solitary nugget factor um, made this mm. kind of endearing. Also, just come on, Gael Garcia Bernal. It was, just, it was striking me that last week we talked about Diego Luna, right? Another Mexican movie star who co-starred with Gael in the great Itumama Tambien over 20 years ago. Now they're both in their own separate, well, one is a series, one's a freestanding standalone show, but, you know, they're both kind of doing their, their Marvel Star Wars thing. And they both bring something from outside into it. You know, it's being a non-American, right? That's one element that they bring from sort of outside but also both of them just don't quite seem right for a Marvel or Star Wars hero. They're not buff. They're not, you know, big bulked up macho dudes. There's something sort of delicate and beautiful about each of them. And they're both perfect in those roles um, and really kind of make the show. So um, Gael is a werewolf. Yes. Uh, standaloneness. <laughs> yes. Does everything work in it? Not completely. I mean, for a 52 minute show, this has a lot of Marvel style fight scenes in it. And frankly, I was tuning out during them and that felt a little bit like... Not quite fan service, but, you know, a studio service. <laughs> like, this couldn't brand itself as a Marvel show unless it had, you know, the requisite 50 times that a guy is getting punched out and his hand is cut off and his hand is then used to fire a weapon at someone else, you know, kind of stuff. It's done fairly well and briskly, but I do wish that Giacchino had had a little bit more time to dig into who the werewolf was. Maybe had him transform more than one time into a werewolf because that scene is great. Uh, I don't want to give away how it's shown, but there's a lot of practical effects in um, in when the werewolf transforms for the first and only time. And that in itself, the fact that there's not CGI or not a lot of CGI in that scene and that there's indirection, you know, like showing a shadow on the wall that's used instead of um, instead of showing a digital transformation of his body. It's just really fun and sweet. And uh, yeah, you, you you don't have to love horror to like this because it's not particularly scary. You could watch it with a 10 or 11 year old kid probably. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm all in. I would do more of these standalones and I would see more from Michael Giacchino. Yeah, I loved everything about it that cut against the, you know, basic, you know, MCU imperatives. As you say, Dana, it's like the standalone is totally anomalous within that business model. You're always teasing, setting up or or calling back and and milking nostalgia, you know, um, and this does really kind of neither. Um, I love Bernal and Donnelly are both terrific. They have chemistry in the in the leads. Um, and <laughs> Harriet Sampson Harris is kind of a revelation. Her voice work alone is hysterically funny. Uh, and you know, just like grand guignol or whatever the expression is, it's, it, it, I mean, she almost, you know, kind of makes it, you know, in the sense that she's the person who sets the whole thing up in the plot, but also throws all of its, you know, preposterous spookiness over the whole project that and also just the look and feel of it i mean i knew nothing about you know giacchino as a as a director um but he's very sure-handed and the you know obviously the largest choice is filming in black and white in this throwback vintage way it reminds me of sitting at home on the carpet in front of an old console tv and watching like bride of frankenstein uh, or something. Uh, and the one source of color in it is the gemstone, which is, you know, a nice little touch. Um, the one thing I'll say, Julia, though, is that the, at the end of the day, Marvel can't help itself, right? At the end of the day, there's a talismanic object that confers superpowers that everyone's fighting over. And a, you know, protracted fistfight is what determines possession of it. And you go back to this, like, extremely crude, reductive template. And it's, everything else is so good it doesn't ruin it by any means but it's boring yeah i mean i think my challenge was less that it was trying to fit into the marvel universe and more that i'm not a fan of that old school universal like i don't know what you're supposed to get out of those exactly not to sound too transactional about it but i i i appreciated the lightness of tone here and that it sort of the stakes felt very low in a way that was um, that worked for me. Like the, typically, the stakes in a Marvel movie are all of civilization is about to be vaporized, right? And yet, 
the way in which it is about to be vaporized is so CGI'd and full of like grayscale garbage that you don't actually care about the vaporization. Um, you know, it's like represented by like one hunks earthbound girlfriend or something. And in this instance, the stakes are like MacGuffinishly low, like who will possess the blood red movie? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, who cares? Um, and I don't know, it like leaned into leaned into the skid, right? Like it was just it just felt like a it was aware of its own significance in the world in a way that was at mm-hmm. odds with the general grandiosity and pomposity of of Marvel Blather. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I I I do think we're at a moment in Hollywood with the sort of consolidation and financial pressures coming to all of these streamers where kind of beautiful weird little furbelows like this are just going to get squashed. <laughs> I'm sorry mm. to say. Like mm. I just think the appetite for making irrational things to stuff out your streaming roster is going to start getting pinched. So I don't know that we're going to get 20 more of these. Um, I assume that Gael will be back to do something else in this character at some point. And there seemed to be a lot of fan love for the man thing. Oh, God, I got to remember the name of the man thing. But anyway, the monster. There's another monster. I think his actual name is Man Thing in the comics, at least. Although he's never called that in this show. Man Thing by day. Anyway, you know, I can't wait for the buddy comedy between uh, (laughs) Werewolf by Night and Man Thing by Day, which surely this is setting up. But um, (laughs) I I did. The Banshees of Inisherin has nothing on (laughs) Werewolf and Man Thing. But is the Man Thing, by the Man Thing, do you mean Ted? The sidekick monster, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Wait, Julia, he has a name. <laughs> Ted. All right. Well, it's sort of a genuinely lighthearted fun, and uh, you should check it out. It's great. It's on Disney Plus, and it's a it's a little Halloween treat. All right, moving on. All right. Well, the writer John Brandon and Forbes has uh, written an article called "Gen Z Have Cancelled the Thumbs Up Emoji," and here's why you should worry, um, Julia. That's a crazy silly headline uh teaser headline and of course you know the new york post a murdoch rag is uh hyping the idea that there's a g- generational battle that emojis are being canceled but i think effectively if i'm correct what we're talking about when for example young colleagues of boomer you know employers find their use of a thumbs up emoji too abrupt or the heart emoji somehow comically anachronistic or inappropriate is it, it there are nuances and subtleties to online communication that only someone who grew up almost entirely in the age of social media will come to understand and they get established organically and laterally among peers as i know witnessing my children and the way they make fun of my usage. Um, Is that what's going on here, a kind of micro-generational battle that's relatively harmless being hyped by journalists, or is something larger and more ominous going on here? Well, there were two two primary texts we were looking at for this piece, right? The the, the main one is... um, Gen Z is canceling the thumbs up emoji and why you should worry or whatever that headline is, which is truly just a gem, a gem of headline writing. And that one is from the perspective of, I think, a Gen X or boomer who's like, I just figured out emoji and now I'm told they're not cool. And and um, is, is, I think, on Forbes and is truly just like a um, worthless piece of internetting apart from the headline. Like, who cares about your emoji use, dude? Um, but uh, Dana also flagged for us in the course of our research a piece in the Atlantic called "The GIF Is on Its Deathbed," noting that this, you know, very popular style of kind of early teens communication of responding with reaction gifs or selecting and clipping the exact right couple of frames of of response uh, and and popping them into a, a Slack or a, a chat or a group chat um, felt um, like a beautiful way to communicate for a while. Um, that that may be ending for various reasons and no longer seems cool. And each of them is a different example uh, with differing levels of erudition of a similar piece, which is like a generational cri de corps of like, I thought I knew how to communicate and the next generation says I'm lame. 
<laughs> and I think there's a, even more pathos to the to the millennial, the the Atlantic piece, which is written by a self avowed millennial, who is I think having that generational experience of newly lamenting, um, being superseded by the next generation. We older types have been superseded several times over now, and so it's I'm, I'm very comfortable with using lame modes of communication. I've got no problem with that. <laughs> Um, but but the sort of particular pathos of the millennial generation, which which felt like it owned the internet for so long because it was the first generation to truly grow up natively online, um, I think seems like it's really wrestling with the fact that the internet changes every you know eighteen months, um, and the next generation of internet users is is sneering at a couple of interneting ticks. Um, so I think what we're seeing here is not technological change or a massive shift in modes of communication, but the fact that slang and habits of chit-chat evolve and inevitably part of the point of their evolution is for the youngest among us to find ways to feel new and fresh and to articulate their particular realities and for we older types to you know, struggle to keep up and um, have our own feelings about our impending deaths um, prompted by the death of the GIF, for example. So it's all about mortality, um, but it's fine, <laughs> is my conclusion. Um, somehow Julia managed to turn a couple of trashy articles, uh, zeitgeist hustling articles into uh, <laughs> uh, Old Testament <laughs> allegory, but um, you get, get off of an issue, last. Um, but, uh, but Dana, I, am I wrong to see something, if not ominous, certainly meaningful here, which is that what there is actually a serious conflict, very like deeply serious conflict, um, between generations about what the sort of general framework and ethos of communication etiquette should be, um, and it can be spun by right-wingers as trivial and, um, uh, you know, even juvenile and overly demanding and, and like morally sensitive to a degree that gives being moral a bad name. It can be spun by, you know, um, people on the left as an utterly necessary change as we move away from, you know, white, older white men, boomer men, um, as the default leaders and owners of public spaces and public speech, um, you know, I, I guess we have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. But, you know, wh as soon as you translate these debates from my kids make fun of me for using the heart emoji or thinking LOL mean, mean, meant lots of love into the workplace um, and, um, you know, uh, any kind of official or semi-official mode of communication on a campus, for example, all of a sudden it's a hugely consequential debate no i guess i mean i'm not sure that it's being in in, in this <laughs> particular tried, circumstance i'm, I'm not sure I you can tried. make that argument because like are people being offended i don't think that this uh, argument about who's old and who should use what emoji which i think is ultimately completely silly like i've said many times on this show that all the kind of like mediatized generational warfare that's constantly being staged seems completely unreal to me yes. like it doesn't really affect most people's lives that much and most divisions that you know group people come along the the, the dividing line of, you know, politics or, or you know, ethnic identity or gender identity or class, all kinds of things that have nothing to do with what generation you're in and what mm -hmm. your right. emoji usage means about that. So, I mean, insofar as I think this is an interesting topic for us to talk about it, and I, and I do, I'm glad that we're taking on this topic. I think it's to sort of put into question the, the the faux ominousness of the second half of that headline with here's how why you should be worried <laughs> you know i mean what is the greatest thing that the author of that article seems to fear or that the you know the people um offended by their um their younger counterparts criticizing their emoji usage fear they fear being thought of as old like who cares <laughs> compared <Right>. to what <laughs> you know i mean it also seems to me that when i think about how emojis are used by lots of people i know and we've had a whole segment before on this show once i think at a live show we talked about emojis in a different context just our own personal usage of them and it struck me including with the response to that piece from listeners how 
uh, creatively and differently, different people use them in ways that have nothing to do with their generation, right? I mean, there's the ironic usage of things, but there's also, I think I talked about this at the time, like a friend of mine who's roughly my generation who makes rebuses out of her emojis and <laughs> will send entire lists, groups of emojis that you have to sort of like put together like a puzzle for fun, you know, or draw faces with them or something. Um, you know, I think I mentioned that in my family, each of us has an emoji that represents us. So, you know, we can send that as part of a conversation about what we're doing. I mean, there's there's a playfulness. That's why people enjoy using them, right? They're little cartoons that sort of mm-hmm. make communication, digital communication, right. a little bit more playful. And I just don't think, I don't really care what some group of people is arguing about what generation uses them in what way. I mean, another example of this, I guess, would be the GIF, you know, whether GIFs are really corny to use or not. I use GIFs all the time because I'm a film critic and I'm often talking to other film critics online. And it's fun and playful if you're talking about movies to go back and forth, posting little moments from those movies. It just, it, it's, it's an integral part of the conversation, you know? So in that sense, like the picture is doing something that words couldn't do. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm missing the point of this conversation, but I could not shrug more about what people think my usage of anything (laughs) means. And in fact, I designed a bitmoji for myself. You know, those characters you can design where you go through and make them sort of look like you. And I always thought bitmojis were completely silly and corny, but I painstakingly designed one that looked as much like me as possible just to torment my daughter, who I guess is Gen Z, um, you know, about the corniness of it. So whenever she'll text me something, I send her back some ridiculous bitmoji of myself, like riding on a rocket ship covered with hearts or something like that, just to make her laugh. <laughs> you know? I also send people bitmojis for their birthdays and they are... Um, they are definitely uncool and that's the point it's like kind of fun i mean i guess there's just this sort of hysteria of like oh no it's the internet i don't know how to use it it's like people don't know how to use language like miscommunication happens with all of the mediums of communication and people make language choices that reflect their like age and upbringing and thus it will ever be and like yeah just don't freak out about it like what yeah, is I, the, the, I, the absolute lack of consequence in all of right. this is, uh, so you say um, i would I, I mean i'm i'm like i feel like i'm trying to inflate a gigantic pool floaty out of this topic right and it kind of is in the shape of and looks like an anvil but even at the end of the day, when I get this like 14 foot tall thing inflated, I'll just be exhausted and it's still just a bunch of hot air, right? Like I, you know, <laughs> Wait, a pool floaty shaped like an anvil. <laughs> <laughs> like it's still oh, going to bob along. the episode title that never was. <laughs> it, it's going to bob along <laughs> harmlessly on the surface of the water. Um, and uh, you don't try blacksmithing on it. But the one thing I would say is that there are these internally generated nuances that that got immediately added to the pre-existing store of like gifs and emojis or whatever and like um you know little a- acronyms or whatever you want to call them little um abbreviations that it, one reason i think young people resorted to them is they're just in a constant game of evasion to not be their elders as they always have been and should be and so all of a sudden like you know certain things take on an importance that older people don't understand. Um, and so you're you're bound to keep on making this generational gaffe to the extent that you communicate with like my kids or whatever. And they're fine. They can just, they love making fun of me. But, you know, I, I do think that there is an ongoing, highly consequential debate about what rules govern like unwritten rules by and large govern public semi-official discourse, especially in the workplace and campuses. And so when there is this friction between generations, you can get into something serious. And the final thing I'd say, and this to me is what I really believe, this isn't the pool floaty, this is this is this is the actual substance of, of it, is that there's just this graceless way in which the baby boomers will not exit the stage literally until the fucking side of the reaper you know comes and gets them and that's where i land with this it's sort of just try to try to grow with an ounce of grace and self-consciousness but steve if i can once again insert my complete skepticism about this whole generational um 
series of divides we're supposed to be arguing about, aren't you part of the baby boom, technically? I mean, wouldn't you have been born in the late years of what's called the baby boom? And I would agree that you don't seem culturally identified with the signifiers of that generation, but couldn't somebody point at you and say, okay, boomer right now? Of course, I would expect them to. They do and should. I have no problem with that. I mean, the one thing I would say is I'm absolutely 100% on a cusp uh, as um, demonstrated by the fact that half of the, you know, demographers say that I'm um, Gen X and half say that I'm baby boomers. I'm literally at that moment where you're sort of neither one. And I will say one of the quirks of my life is that someone three years older than me feels like they are a member of a completely distinct generation from me and someone three years younger does as well. And I think that that's somewhat curious, right? Like I definitely, I definitely note it repeatedly in my own experience. All right. Well, in conclusion, everybody communicate however you want. All right. That is bound to go smoothly. Let me read that preposterous title one more time. Gen Z have canceled the thumbs up emoji. And here's why you should worry. It's in four. Here's why you should worry. (laughs) Grab the bloodstone. (laughs) (laughs) Your spooky voice is terrific, man. I, so it's sad spooky it comes season, man. Once a year. Yeah, it sure is. All right, yeah. let's move on. All right, well, now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Stephen, I'm going to endorse the movie that made me stay up way too late last night. I was tuning in to watch uh, Werewolf by Night, the, the one-hour Marvel special that we talked about. And when I turned on the TV, TCM happened to be on And the 1962 horror film Carnival of Souls happened to be just about to begin. So I just fell into the hole. And even though I've seen this movie several times, I mean, it's almost Halloween. I had to watch it again. Do either of you know this low-budget horror movie from 1962, Carnival of Souls? No. Black and white. I do not. No? All right. Well, I'm afraid that many people listening, if you're a cult horror person, you probably know this movie already. I would not classify myself as a cult horror person. I don't seek out horror movies just because I want to have that sensation. But when the right one comes along, I completely get why that sensation is pleasurable. And if you enjoy that sensation, you can have it watching Carnival of Souls, one of the weirdest horror movies I can think of. So Carnival of Souls is a very low-budget movie. It was produced and directed by a guy named Herc Harvey, making his only feature-length movie. And it just has this feeling of sort of creepy rightness, where even though all the choices, almost every choice in it seems to have been made because the budget was only (laughs) $33,000. At the same time, every one of those choices works incredibly. And it's it's got so much artfulness in it, given how low that budget actually is. And I don't want to give up too much about it, except to say that it's about a young woman who has a car crash and afterwards starts to have all kinds of very strange experiences that you don't know if they mean she's gone crazy, you don't know if you mean, they mean she's in the afterlife, or if she's just in a supernatural world. But, well, Julia, one of your least favorite movie tropes, an abandoned carnival is involved in Carnival <laughs> oh, of Souls. No, I will never watch this. God damn it. <laughs> and the whole thing has just this very culty feeling that has been cited as sort of like early David Lynch. Um, you know, it could it has a little bit in, in, in common with sort of slasher movies, but it's not extremely gory. It's much more moody. Uh, there is a lot of organ music in it because this young woman happens to be a church organist for a living. Always a good job to have if you're going to be the heroine of a horror movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all I can say is that it gives you this feeling of creepy unsettledness throughout and images that you'll never forget, even while you can't quite say that the plot makes complete sense. Anyway, it's all vibes. It's Carnival of Souls from 1962, and it's not hard to find streaming on any platform. I know that it's on TCM right now this month. Oh, that is marvelous. Julia, what do you have? That's a sensational endorsement for something I will never watch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, so there's this singer-songwriter. I've been a fan of hers for a while. Not sure everybody's really aware of her, but she's got a new album out, and I really think it's worth a listen. It is called Midnights, and the singer's name is Taylor Swift, and I just, (laughs) you know, really think people should... Give her a chance. You know, she's she's like an artist. She's got really interesting things to say about the world in her voice, using her authorship. And um, it's time to reconnect with Tay. I'm just trolling Steve, but I do really like Taylor's new album. I mean, I think I, it's sort of halfway between pop Taylor and folky Taylor. And I am still listening, and it remains to be seen whether there are 
um, epic bops for time immemorial on this. Um, there's a particular song called Antihero, which is just the apotheosis of everything that's irritating about her shtick of like kind of uh, everybody hates meism um, that is understandably irritating to many. And yet the song is so good and has a very funny chorus and it's super catchy. And I was singing it all last night. Anyway, Taylor Swift, Midnight's, uh, check out the song Antihero, and um, enjoy. You know, Julia. Yes, Steve. You had to administer a little bit of gratuitous Halloween poison to Mm -hmm. taint the whole show and bring me within an (laughs) inch of the grave. But as the rigor mortis, <laughs> as, the, as the rigor mortis rises up, chilling my body with premonitions of a blank afterlife, <laughs> I have the antidote right here. Okay. Because I too am endorsing a singer-songwriter uh, who's actually good. And uh, it comes, <laughs> comes to us from a surprising uh, place, which is... you. Everyone knows the band from the 60s, The Zombies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? What's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? Um, you know, they had a couple of huge hits. To take you in the Sort of a somewhat star-crossed career. They broke up right before uh, their best record broke and became hugely popular, on and on and on. Well, it turns out, I didn't know this. A friend of mine told me this past weekend. Well, you know that the lead singer of The Zombies, Colin Blundstone, made like a masterpiece of a solo record, kind of in the Nick Drake singer-songwriter, mopey, you know, really deep English Celtic folky um, vein. And it's, it, 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 it's a the record is called one year. I think it's from 71 or two. Um, and these songs are extraordinary. I mean, it is regarded as a masterpiece and it is, it's just a, a tremendous, like beautiful contemplative. It's like all of what's really uniquely bewitching about the zombies, but just sort of, sent in a very different direction with, um, you know, string arrangements and uh, finger-picking guitar. And then his vocals are so precise and sort of unexpectedly Baroque without being show-offy. I mean, there's these wonderful melodic swoops to it that are just great. I love it. It's just a tremendous record. I cannot believe that the vault like got shaken one more time and some beautiful, beautiful gemstone fell out of it and saved my life this Halloween from the poison of poptimism um, and spite, <laughs> which is Julia Turner. <laughs> All right. So um, it's Colin Blunstone, B-L-U-N-S-T-O-N-E, Colin Blunstone. He, the lead singer of The Zombies, his solo record from the early 70s, One Year. Check it out. I feel like if we've learned anything from this episode, it's that we should record like a universal style spooky season radio play. I feel like we all have good spooky voices that were like unbeknownst to me, low these 15 odd years of taping this show. So Vince and Bryce, watch your back. I love it. Next Halloween, all spook edition. Yeah, absolutely. Get your zithers out. 
You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Please do. We love it. Uh, our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we bring you uh, a special dispatch on numismatology. Anna Mae Wong, the pioneering actress, is going to be on a U.S. quarter. And this caused all of us to prick up our ears because America hasn't put cultural figures on its quarters, much less cultural figures as cool and overlooked and interesting as Anna Mae Wong. So we wanted to talk about that. Uh, And then in the course of our research, um, at least it was news to me, that the U.S. Mint is putting out a collectible, notable American women quarter series over the next five years. Uh, And Anna Mae Wong is one of these notable American women. So, Dana, I know it's been a long time uh, complaint of yours that uh, other nations celebrate their artists, whereas we only celebrate our state's men, and they are usually men with a few exceptions on our currency. Um, what did you make of this anime Wong news? Yeah, I was the one pressing for this as our as our plus topic, even though I'm not in particular, you know, a coin collector or coin enthusiast. I was just really intrigued as somebody who spent the last five years, you know, researching silent films and early cinema that a figure like anime Wong, who even, I mean, she's starting to emerge now as, as a, a figure people write and talk about, or you'll see a retrospective of her movies here and there. But, you know, she's she's hardly a household name, even for people who follow classic movies. And here she is appearing on our money. And yeah, as you say, I just remember the first time I spent an extended period of time in any foreign country was when I went to Paris for my junior year abroad. Wonderful experience all around. Um, and I remember just being stunned at how cool their money was, you know, and maybe the French go particularly far in this direction of having cultural figures on the money. But, you know, you were constantly looking down at your money and and seeing some like 16th century French poet that you'd never heard of, you know, it wasn't even like household names were on their money. It was just cultural figures galore on their money, more so than political figures, I think. And, uh, you know, of course, that's, that's not something that America has ever been good at. Um, Susan B. Anthony, who you wouldn't call a cultural figure exactly, but, you know, obviously if figure in feminist history. I remember the Susan B. Anthony dollar, a silver dollar that came out when I was probably in middle school. And and it was right around the same time that the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, was up for a vote and, you know, was the talk of, of the town, including among eighth graders or whatever, failed to pass. And that plus the Susan B. Anthony dollar just completely failing. Nobody wanted it. And it only lasted a couple years before it was retired from circulation. And it was sort of, as I remember, made fun of like, ah, the failing Susan B. Anthony dollar. Those two things were really a big blow to my emerging sense of what you know, womanhood was going to be like, wait a second, you mean <laughs> we don't get to be on money and have equal rights? Wait a minute, what's going on here? I remember feeling actually confused, you know, like not having enough of a sense of sort of, you know, the ongoing injustice of gender relations to not just be surprised by those two things. Um, later, there was the Sacagawea dollar, and I'm not sure it had that negative a response, but when's the last time you spent a gold Sacagawea dollar, right? I mean, of course, now cash itself is disappearing from our hands. But I guess I, I, all I really have to say about this is, you know, yay, let us be let us be handling coinage with anime Wong's face on it. I'm actually going to see if I could get some of these coins if they don't all sell out, if there's a way to sort of get your bank to give you a roll of them or something like that. Because... It's an age-old, literally millennia-old or maybe more tradition that, you know, coins are passed from hand to hand with some sort of profile. In this case, actually, it's a, it's a full-on face, which is unusual on a coin of Anime, anime Wong, um, that that records the face of someone who's supposed to matter. And that person has always, always, always been a man, right? At least in the U.S. it always has. Um So the idea that we might get, you know, the Harriet Tubman $20 bill that was talked about and then killed, and that it's such a big deal. Like, really? We just can't get one freaking coin with a woman's face on it. So the fact that somebody powerful enough at the U.S. Mint or Treasury, whoever makes these decisions, somebody powerful enough to make that decision thought of Anna Mae Wong, to me seems like 
this little ray of light, you know, that maybe there is someone who is thinking these same things, like, where are the women? Where are the cultural figures? Can we please represent authority <laughs> and, and I don't know, um, worthiness of being mem- remembered or whatever it is that being on a coin is supposed to signify for someone who isn't a man? Value, right? I mean, that's what it means to be on currency. Steve, right, literally what do you value. make of this? Oh, I mean, it's unequivocally wonderful, right? And and just to start, you know, this shines a light on this person who I knew nothing about, right? I, I know very little about silent movies, but it's really, that's that's no reason for her to have remained as, obs- as, as obscure as she is. Let me just quote from the Mint press release. She's remembered as an international film star, fashion icon, television trailblazer, and a champion for the greater representation of Asian Americans in film. Um, you know, Dana, as you know, I mean, she's had an extraordinary career and like so many from the silent era, more or less disappeared. Though in her case, she was the first uh, Asian American lead actor in an American TV show in 1951. Um, so she continued to trailblaze and, um, you know, her life story sounds extraordinary. Um, I'm just quoting from a, a, a journalist now. Wong was also regularly asked to compete against white actresses wearing quote unquote yellow face for roles. Um, and she was given demeaning uh, stereotypical roles. She's, you know, she's a person who just had to fight for what, dignity and success she had and does not deserve to be forgotten. So, you know, currency has that double meaning in some sense of, you know, the stuff you use in order to buy other stuff. Um, But it's also just currency. It's current. It's something that circulates currently and commonly. And um, her name deserves to do that. But Julia, I have to say, like, not to be the okay boomer of this discussion too, the one thing that I worry about is... You know, if there's one thing we have learned to our absolute horror over the last, I mean, you could argue 200 years, but it's come home in new and horrible ways in the last 10 slash 20 is how fragile um, and ultimately combustible the egos are of, and I hate to use a crude designation, but white men. And, you know, America has a huge problem understanding what its public ethos is in order to therefore define what appears in the public space. And the fight is worth it to have Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill, you know, unlike a quarter or something that is really in common currency and whose face, you know, she would be displacing Andrew freaking Jackson, right? Um, Paragon of American, you know, racist and imperial conquest. Um, You know, the Trump before the letter, Um, you know, pseudo populist extraordinaire. And, you know, but am I wrong to have to think, like game it out at least one step for, you know, someone insisting, I mean, demagoguing and the propagandistic right-wing machine running with it, this represents a kind of extinction or looming extinction. Well, I would argue that this is like a half measure putting anime right. wrong on the quarter. It, and I think the Harriet Tubman bill was put forth. Then I believe it was canceled under Trump. Then it has been reestablished. I believe the current state is that the Harriet Tubman $20 bill is coming in 2030. And I would argue that that is the, is the actual benchmark to think about. This quarter series is cool, but the women are not on the front of the quarter. On the front of the quarter is a different bust of Washington. Um, Apparently, it was a design by a female sculptor that was rejected uh, in favor of the design we all know, which was by a male sculptor when the quarter was first minted back in the beginning of the 20th century. And so they've, they've kept Washington's mug on the front. The women, and there will be 25 of them, are on the back um, in the in the manner of the state quarters, which came out and were kind of a collectible series um, that the Mint made and which were very fun to collect. I collected them. I enjoyed trying to get to all of them. And this was during a period of my life when I had both bed bugs and no washer dryer. So I spent a lot of time at the laundromat and it made it much more interesting to be like looking for the North Carolina quarter. Um, so 
you know, I, this is a good step, but the, the kind of true lionization, you know, they put, they put Susan B. Anthony and Sacagawea on dollar coins. What kind of coins do we use in America? Not dollar coins, right? <laughs> like, exactly. at least they're not fine. They're fine. They're finally putting women on the quarter. Um, where are they putting them on the quarter? The back of the quarter. Like, this is not real. I mean, it's real. I, I, I don't mean to dismiss the, how meaningful it is that these women, and there it's a, a number of, I think 10 of them have been named so far. And they, I would say Anna Mae Wong is sort of the middle of the level of obscurity. They range all the way from um, Eleanor Roosevelt to people with public profiles much, much less known, I think, than Anna Mae Wong, who at least had the the kind of gloss of Hollywood celebrity on her. And it's a super cool project. But get Harriet Tubman on the fucking front of the $20 bill. And by 2030, okay, then it's going to be like... Um, you know, like when, when people sign up for like sepia, you know, they stand still at the county fair to get a sepia tone photo of themselves. Like, oh, we're finally going to get Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill by the time like we all right. have cashless apps like wired into our brains. Like put her on the bill now. Like, Why is it going to take 10 years or eight years? Like, I don't know. This is exciting. But fundamentally, these collectible quarter series are like a money-making endeavor by the Mint to try to keep cash relevant when it's dying. So they're finally going to let women be on the currencies by the time cash is completely dead. Great. So that's my cynical takedown of the quarters, even though I will definitely buy the little sleeve and collect them all and learn about all the women who are honored, all of whom are super cool. I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's a day late and about 75 cents short, or maybe 1975 completely agree. It's a pitiful gesture. Before we close, could I just really briefly recommend yeah, yeah. a couple of anime Wong movies? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Do. I am far from knowing her career well, I should say, and I'm sure there are listeners out there who who have deeper cuts to recommend, but just if you want to get a sense, let the coin do something for your cultural knowledge and actually explore who anime Wong is. She is not just a silent actress. In fact, most of her films, I think, were in the sound era, um, but you could start off with a silent movie called Piccadilly that she made in England. Uh, when she did find herself, Steve, as you said, uh, um, often getting passed over for parts by white actresses playing Asians. She went to England and started making movies where, you know, at least I guess the racism has a slightly different cast to it. And she made some good movies there. One of them is Piccadilly from 1929, which is her last silent movie. All of these movies, I should say, have, you know, Orientalist tropes galore in them. And so it's one of those things where she's working around that and with that rather than being able to single handedly conquer it. But a lot of them are still interesting movies that are worth seeing. And certainly for her performance, her most famous movie, which is a sound movie, is probably Shanghai Express, the Josef von Sternberg movie with Marlena Dietrich, in which she plays a complete Orientalist stereotype, but is unforgettable and intense in it. And then... What else can I say? I will recommend one sound movie she's in from 1937, the year that really broke her heart, the year that she lost out on a part in The Good Earth um, based on the, the bestseller by Pearl S. Buck. It was basically the biggest, highest profile role of an Asian person in the history of American movies. And she didn't get it. A white actress named Louise Rainier, who wore yellow face, got it. And after that, Anna May's career started to decline somewhat. But that same year, she made this movie called Daughter of Shanghai that's really worth seeing because it has a rare thing in an anime Wong movie, which is a happy ending. She gets to go off with her Asian, I believe he's played by a Korean American actor. She gets to go off with her boyfriend at the end. And both of these two Asian Americans get to be happy and find love. And uh, given that she was constantly having to die and be martyrized in every other movie, that makes Daughter of Shanghai kind of special. Anyway, go see anything by anime Wong because she's just a, a fascinating figure. And, uh, and she looks, she looks great in 30s Hollywood costumes. Oh, I love those recommendations. Yes. I mean, I, I'm slightly cynical about the Mint's endeavors here, but it does seem like the work they're doing curating a really interesting list of important American women in history is smart, worthy, complicated, a more difficult project probably than coordinating with each state to figure out what it wanted to put on the back of its state quarter, um, a more kind of ambitious and open-ended curatorial project and they're taking some really interesting swings. So uh, collect them all, but let's get Harriet in here. And thank you so much, Slate Plus members. Please spend several of your bills of denomination to support Slate and its journalism and our show and this bonus segment. We're very grateful for all of that. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>